knows better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that we finished looking at the Ten Commandments, we kind of brought up some important questions like, what happens when someone breaks them? You know, we know that it's going to happen. We know that no one's going to keep them completely. So, you know, what does the judges of Israel do? You know, how do they justly judge those that break the commandments of God? Uh, in in verse uh, chapters 21 through 23, God kind of deals with de- several different laws which show how judges should deal with different crimes that are broken, uh, what God determines as a just punishment for those things, and uh, ultimately specific laws that reveal God's legal system uh, and His just penalty for broken commandments. And we noted last week that the legal systems that we see in the world today, they're, they're flawed. Many of them are very unjust. And, and the ultimate reason for that is because they were designed by sinful people who are flawed and unjust. And even sometimes, you know, the way in which they were designed is pretty good, but the way in which they're actually practiced is not because they're practiced through judges and people who are flawed, who take bribes, who are unjust. And so we see systems that don't work very well because man is sinful and designs legal systems that ultimately, you know, don't work. Uh, but the legal system that we look at here in Exodus, it's not one that's flawed. It's not one that's unjust. It's one that is perfect and it's one that is completely just. Why? Because the one that designed and created it is God, who is completely just, who is perfect. And so what he has put together, who is the one who has the standard for morality, for what is right and wrong, he says, this is what is perfect. This is what is just. This is the commands that I have, and this is also the way in which people should be punished for breaking the commands that I have established. Now, there have been many Christians over the years who have struggled with God's legal system, struggled with the way in which he has designed it, struggled with the commands that he has laid out. But probably the biggest struggle that Christians have had over the years is with the punishment that God has given for certain crimes. There are certain punishments that the believers will look at and just think, that is too extreme, I don't think that is just, I don't think that's right for, for that crime. And, and so they kind of approach that that way. And really the, the, the punishment that is the most debated or the most difficult for a lot of believers to accept is one of capital punishment. Dealing with God saying, someone deserves to die for a crime that they have committed, for a command that they have broken. Uh, That's one that that many people who are believers and definitely people who are not believers have a difficulty with. And the next set of laws that we're going to look at tonight, we looked at a few last week, we're going to look at laws dealing with violence. Uh, And laws dealing with violence have a common theme in their punishment. Not all of the punishments reach this level, but a majority do, and that punishment is death. And so we're going to be dealing with capital punishment that God says, if you do this, this is your consequence. This is what should happen to you. This is what the judges of Israel should sentence you with and then should also fulfill that by taking your life. Now, God starts this law. He brings up many things, but when he deals with laws of violence, he starts at the top. Well, what's the worst one? Well, premeditated murder. Uh, That's where God's going to start, and he's going to share that, you know what, the punishment for premeditated murder should be death. Uh, There is a capital punishment associated with 
this crime. And so tonight, instead of looking at all that God says about the laws concerning violence, we're just going to start with the most extreme, the first one that he deals with. Uh, And then I want to take some time just to kind of look at what the Word of God says about capital punishment. What are some of the arguments that people have brought against it to try to say it's not, you know, just or it's not biblical? And just to kind of get a good perspective of that. And then next week, we'll continue on with looking at what God says about other violent crimes. Because I think if we don't have a a grasp of this. This is one of those sections where if you feel like, well, this isn't unjust or this isn't right or this isn't biblical, then, you know, as we move on, you know, many things might be a little bit more problematic for us. And so we're going to start here with the most extreme of these violent crimes, uh, and that is murder. Let's see what God has to say about what should happen with murderers. Exodus chapter 21, verses 12 through 14 says this, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die." So here we see God establishing a crime and a punishment, and we're actually going to see two different crimes within these verses, but the first is the one that when we would look at violent crimes at the top of the list, premeditated murder. Uh, and so God says, hey, you know, this is something that's going to occur. And remember, we looked at uh, the sixth commandment is you shall not murder, but God knew, well, people are going to break this. Something's going to happen where someone's going to do this, and there's going to be a consequence for that. Now, the thing that we noted when we were back uh, looking at the Sixth Commandment is there is a difference between murder and killing. And it's a very important difference to understand, especially as we start looking at the punishment, because God distinguishes. There's a different punishment for murder than for killing. And so we need to understand those differences as we move forward here. And I'll remind you of the differences. The difference between murder and killing is that murder is the taking of life without legal justification. So someone has not gone through the legal process. They have not been found guilty of murder. So it's taking someone's life without legal justification for that. You don't have a legal justification to do it. That's murder. It's also the taking of life without moral justification. The moral justification of something like self-defense or defense of your country, you know, those would be under categories of moral justification for taking a life. Killing is the exact opposite. It's the taking of life with legal justification. So someone has gone through the legal process, like in our culture, you've got 12 of your peers, they say, we find you guilty. You're a murderer. We have all the evidence that's been put before us. We see that you have committed this crime, and so you have legally been found guilty of murder, and so now we sentence you to death. When they kill you, that is considered killing, not murder, because there's legal justification for your death. But also, killing is a taking of life with moral justification. Someone breaks into your home trying to kill you and your family, and self-defense kicks in, you have a gun, you shoot them, they die, that's not considered murder. That is killing. You've killed them in self-defense. Or you're a soldier. You've fought and you've killed in self-defense. We're fighting for your country. And so that distinction is very important to understand, especially as we look at the laws concerning violence and more particularly the punishment that God gives for many of these laws, because God not only distinguishes between murder and killing, he also distinguishes between the punishment that he says you should give to a murderer versus someone who is guilty of just killing. Notice here verse 12 starts by giving kind of the overall principle. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So so here's kind of the the principle. If you kill someone, you, you strike them, you're the cause of their death. The consequence of that is that you should die because of that. But notice in verse 13 and 14, God reveals a distinction between murder and killing. 
and a distinction on how these to be punished. Verse 14, it speaks about someone who commits murder, and it speaks out the punishment that that murderer should have. It says, if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So notice what God is establishing. The person is a premeditated murderer. He's gone. He's thought about it. He's prepared the way for it. He wanted to kill you. He killed you by treachery. You know, this was not some accidental thing. This was not some self-defense thing. This was someone who was seeking to kill you, and they followed through with it and did it. And God says, the punishment for that person should be that their life is taken from them. Notice what God says. You shall take him from my altar that he may die. Now, this is interesting that what God says here, because this principle for the punishment for murderers, he starts with, remove them from my altar. Which is interesting, because not only do we see biblically about the altar as the place of mercy and sacrifice, but altars in the, you know, the, the, the world at that time, even in other different religions, you know, it was thought of if you committed a crime and, you know, you come to the altar, it's a place of mercy, a place of sanctuary. And so God's saying, you know what, for a murderer, they don't get to come to the altar and cry out for mercy. If they've committed premeditated murder, there's no mercy for them. Kill them. That's what I want from you. I want you to take their life. Now, a little bit later on in this teaching tonight, I'm going to give one of the reasons that God gives in the book of Numbers of why he does not want to show mercy to murderers. But for now, just note that God says, hey, if you've done this, you're a premeditated murderer, the consequence for that is that your life should be taken from you. But also note that God makes a distinct difference between the premeditated murderer and the person who has committed killing. Notice what verse 13 says. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint you a place where he may flee. God is speaking about the other areas that we looked at with killing, like self-defense. Someone comes in your house and, and God, you know, notice how the, the term that he uses, delivers him into your hand. He ultimately enables you to pr protect yourself from this person and you kill them or it's an accidental death that, you know, this wasn't some purposeful thing. You know, it just happened accidentally. Then God says that there's a different punishment. You know, you're not into the, the category of murder and so you don't suffer the consequences of a murderer. Instead, you're under the category of killing, that it was self-defense or as an accident and therefore very different in the eyes of God of how you should be dealt with. And, and notice what God does. He says, I'm going to appoint that these people might flee to an appointed place. Now, this is an interesting thing that God establishes where we see in the book of Numbers that God establishes what is called a place or city of refuge. So for those who have committed killing, not murder, it was self-defense, it was an accident, but they were the cause of someone else's death, they could flee to this city of refuge. Well, why would they need to flee anything? Well, in the, the culture of the time, in the world of that time, it was very common if you were to kill someone else's family member, like I kill Colson well, then it would be the responsibility of Colson's father and brothers to come kill me. You know, hey, well, we're going to get back. If you've killed our family member, then we're going to come make sure that you die as well. And that was just something that was common. It was something that was well, you know, lived out in the culture at that time. And so if you accidentally killed someone, Colson and I are hanging out, you know, we're doing whatever, you know, he dies at my hand. Um, and now all of a sudden his dad and brothers want my life. You know, well, it wasn't purposeful, and they're not going to listen to me. All they see is their dead son or their dead brother, and they're not going to listen to me try to explain, well, wait a second, it was an accident. They're just going to kill me. And so God says, I got a plan. I'm going to make these cities of refuge that you can go to to be protected. Numbers 35, chapters, uh, verses 9 through 15, God explains this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And of the cities which you give, you shall have six cities of refuge, 
You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, and three cities you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which will be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. So notice that God is establishing this. Before they even come into the land, he says, hey, when you get there, there needs to be six different cities spread out through the nation of Israel, cities of refuge. Why? When the person who accidentally kills someone and now retribution from family members want to come to him, they can run to this city. And when they're in this city, they will be protected. No one will be allowed to kill them until they get to stand trial until they get to stand before the judges of Israel, because they might say, it was an accident. And then they come before the judges and the evidence is brought forth and we find out, no, it wasn't. It was actually premeditated murder. Okay, well then they'll be killed. But they're going to get their day in court, is the point. You know, and if it is an accident, then they'll be set free. If it was self-defense, they'll be set free. But they're going to be in that city to be protected until they can stand before a judge who can hear their case and nobody takes vengeance into their own hands. Now, we see here on this map that there were six you know, cities that were strategically located throughout the nation of Israel so that you basically only had one day journey to get there. And so, you know, you, you do this accidental killing, man, you're out of that town as quick as possible to this city of refuge. You might live in the city or you might be farther away, but you should only be about a day's journey. And God designed that so you'd be able to get there and get protected um, so that you could stand judgment before a judge and not have you know, judgment from some other family member who wants to get back at you. So God makes a clear distinction between murder and its punishment and between killing and its punishment. The murderer, you should kill him. The person who's guilty of just killing accidentally or self-defense, they need to have their day in court. And if they're found to just be self-defense or accidental killing, then they will be released without punishment. So in God's legal system, there is definitely capital punishment for those who are guilty of murder. And the punishment ultimately is that their life should be taken from them. Now, I know for many Christians, capital punishment is something that is a controversial issue. Uh, I understand where many Christians are coming from. Uh, I understand the struggle that comes with taking someone's life. You know, that is something that has a lot of magnitude to it. It's not something that should be taken lightly. But there are two things that many Christians against capital punishment use and say to try to prove that they believe, you know, it's not supposed to be done. And I want to address these two things because I feel that they're not accurate statements biblically, that they're not true about God. Um, and when they make these statements, ultimately it shines a negative, untrue light on God himself and on his word. Uh, the first statement against capital punishment, and it's really the one I probably would say I have the most problems with, is when someone says capital punishment is not just. The taking of life of someone else is not just. I'm sure you've heard people make that statement. I know I've heard many people uh, share that. When we lived in Scotland, you know, pretty much the whole culture was against capital punishment. And everyone would say to me, well, capital punishment is not just. Killing someone who is you know, a murderer or whatever the crime is, you know, that is not a just consequence for what they did. But here's the real problem with that statement. I understand when non-Christians make that statement, I get where they're coming from. But if you're a believer in Christ, you believe that God is just, you believe that God is sinless, you believe that God knows best, you believe that his word is true, you got a problem if you come to a conclusion that says capital punishment is not just. Well, what's your problem? Well, the one who has established it is God. This isn't Moses who came up with this. This isn't the Israelites who came up with this. We need to recognize God himself is the one who has said, the person who commits premeditated murder should die. God is saying the just punishment for this crime is death. And so if you and I are to turn around and say that is not just, then we're saying what God has established is wrong. That God is a liar. That is not just. That God is not just in doing this. Because those who say capital punishment isn't just are ultimately saying that God is not just because he established it with the nation of Israel. And so we have a quite a big problem when we come to this because the implications it brings against God is that he is not a just God, that he is a liar, that his word is not something that we should hold to, that he is just extreme in the way in which he deals with people who break his law. Now, I get why people don't like it. 
I also get why people don't like the concept of hell. I get the idea that people don't want punishment. Yeah, we don't like it. We, we like to be sinful and not have punishment for our sin, but to say it's unjust is just not true. God is the one who established what's right and wrong, and he's also the one who establishes what the proper just consequence should be for breaking what he establishes is right and wrong. And he says, if you kill or murder, should I say, a person, then the punishment for you is death. The second problematic statement that many Christians make who are against capital punishment is it's not biblical. The first is it's not just. And then the second is, well, and I'll prove it to you because it's not biblical. Now, whenever you say something isn't biblical, you better have something in the Bible that clearly backs that up. You know, and this is something that you'll hear a lot with skeptics or even with Christians who will make different statements. Well, well, that's not biblical. Well, show me in the Bible where it's not biblical. Show me you know, clear text in their context that declares that this is not something that God has established. This is not something that is biblical. And if you can do that, great. So you know, those who are saying, well, capital punishment, that that's not biblical. Well, first, we got to start with the reality that it probably no one would you know, deny the fact that the Bible clearly says God established capital punishment. I mean, we see it here in Exodus. We see it in Leviticus. We see it in Deuteronomy. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in the New Testament as well. So it shouldn't be like, well, it doesn't say it. Well, well yes, it does say it. Uh, but here's where the first verse that people come to, um, who are Christians who try to say, I'll prove to you that capital punishment is unbiblical. They'll come to a passage that we just looked at. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 what are we told? You shall not murder. See? You shall not murder. Capital punishment is murder. So you can't do it. It's not biblical. God clearly says you shall not murder. And this is kind of a, an interesting argument because we'll just keep reading. And the same one who said you shall not murder tells you to kill people who murder. And now the problem with this, as I just noted, is they're not making a distinction. They think that any death that is caused by someone is murder. But there's a difference between murder and there's a difference between killing. God does not see the legal system who judges someone in a court of law, finds them guilty of murder, and then puts them to death as murderers. No, they are fulfilling the role that God has given them as a government, and they are killing that person. And there's nothing wrong with that in God's eyes. That's not considered murder. And so looking at this verse and saying, well, wait a second, God says you shall not murder. So that's obvious biblical evidence that you can't have capital punishment. They're just missing the reality that God sees murder and killing as two different things. And the killing of someone having already gone through the legal system and been found guilty of murder is not murder in itself. Now, there are other people who say, okay, well, I get the Old Testament talks about this. I get Exodus says this, but it's no longer biblical because the New Testament came along and some things changed. Uh, and, and so that's where kind of the, they, they start with that premise. So if yeah, the, the God of the Old Testament, he was kind of a, a mean person anyway, and he had a really, you know, strong response to people who were sinful. But hey, remember Jesus? I mean, he's real different and people kind of have this concept. And so they say, well, the New Testament has proven that things have changed, that the Bible and God's concept of capital punishment has changed, and they'll bring up some passages in the New Testament to try to prove that, and this is where context is so key. And whenever someone brings some argument against anything, whether it's capital punishment or anything else, you always want to help them understand the context, because oftentimes they'll just take one verse, and if you just read it, you might think, well, I see your point, but let's see the verses before and after. Let's see the context of where it's at so that we can understand what's being said. And one of the first scriptures that people use is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39. It says this, Jesus speaking, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So people who are against capital punishment say, yeah, well, the God of the Old Testament was all for it. But when Jesus came on the scene, look what he taught. He taught the opposite. Notice what he says. He says you shouldn't resist an evil person. You shouldn't seek to get revenge against them. But what should you do? You should turn the other cheek. So he's telling us no longer use capital 
punishment. That was a thing of the Old Testament, but under the New Testament, under the new covenant with Jesus, that is no longer something that Jesus wants. He wants everyone to turn the other cheek. He doesn't want any capital punishments. Now, the context of this verse is very important. Jesus is not speaking about government. He's not speaking about the legal system. He's speaking about individual relationships that we have with others. It's not the judicial functions of the government. So Jesus is saying, as individuals, guess what? Someone does something to you, you should forgive them. You should turn the other cheek. In our relationship with others, we shouldn't be seeking to get vengeance. Paul speaks of this as well. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You shouldn't be going after people. That is not the responsibility of you. Someone does something to you. Someone does something to your family. You need to turn the other cheek. You need to forgive them. Your role is not to get vengeance against them. But the interesting thing is in Romans chapter 12, Paul's dealing with the fact that you shouldn't do that. And in Romans chapter 13, he picks up right where he left off and talks about the role of government, which is to do capital punishment. So he's distinguishing, hey, one is for individuals. It's not the right of the individual to get back at someone. They kill your wife, you don't get to go kill them. They smack you in the face, you don't get to do it back. You know, there, there's a reality that, hey, as an individual, I need to turn the other cheek. But as a government of legal system, that this is not what Jesus is speaking about. He's not speaking against capital punishment. He's speaking against uh, individuals. And I just want you to think about it for a moment. You know, for those who were to throw that out there saying, well, well, Jesus' statement here that you have to turn the other cheek means you can't do this. Well, let's apply that to the legal system. If you take that logic and apply it to the legal system, guess what? You can't punish any crime. You're a thief. Sorry, got to turn the other cheek. Can't do anything to you. You're a murderer. Sorry, we can't do anything. You got to turn the other cheek. You know, no matter what the thing is, if we try to apply it in the context of which they're talking about, then you couldn't do anything to anybody. Uh, and so obviously they're not trying to make that statement. They just want to say no capital punishment. They don't want to say no consequence to breaking laws. You know, typically people aren't, aren't, you know, promoting anarchy. They just don't like this particular punishment. And so they attack it and they use this verse to try to back that up. But if you were actually to be consistent and say, well, if I'm going to use this, then guess what? I got to use this across the board for the legal system, which would mean nobody gets punished. You know, everybody just gets to turn the other cheek. Um, and that's not what Jesus is speaking about at all. It's not speaking about the government or the legal system, just individuals. Now, the second scripture that uh, Christians try and use, maybe I think uh, would be a little more convincing, uh, is in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. A very familiar story as I read it. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw that no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are, your, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. So here's another verse that those who are against capital punishment, that they come to this passage and they say, Well, see, clearly Jesus is teaching that capital punishment is not something that he endorses. The stoning of this woman... Because as we're going to see as we move through, you know, different crimes, uh, well, that God is going to establish adultery is to be punished by death. And so they're saying, hey, th this is a capital punishment. Jesus has the perfect opportunity to speak on it, and he doesn't endorse it. And so clearly that means we shouldn't have capital punishment today. Now, once again, we need to understand the context of what's going on here. Notice the reason why these Pharisees bring this woman caught in adultery to Jesus. We're told by John, the author of this gospel, the motive behind this. The law says we should stone her, but what do you say, Jesus? And then notice what it says. They asked Jesus this to test him, 
that they might have something of which to accuse him. So this wasn't to discover Jesus' thoughts on capital punishment. Jesus, you know, we're really curious. You're a great rabbi and teacher. What's your thought on capital punishment? That this woman caught in adultery, does she deserve death? What do you think? That wasn't the purpose at all. Remember the Catch-22 they tried to get Jesus in right before this? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Oh, there's no answer for that. If you say yes, everybody's going to be mad at you who are Israelites because they don't want to pay taxes to Caesar. If you say no, the Romans are going to get against you and you're going to be in such big trouble no matter what you answer. And Jesus, wiser than them, says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, to God the things that are God. Well, here's another situation where we're thinking, well, we're going to get Jesus in a situation where no matter what he says, we'll have people against him. Because the law clearly says this woman deserves death. But guess what? At this time in Israel's history, they don't have the right to capital punishment. That is why they needed Pontius Pilate to kill Jesus. He had to give the order. Why? Because the Romans took that away from the nation of Israel. They did not have the right to capital punishment at this point in time in their history. And so they realized, hey, if Jesus says, yes, she deserves death, Rome's going to come after him. Because they're going to come to you know, Pontius Pilate and the Romans and say, look it, he's telling people that they should you know, take what you have taken from us, that they should take back capital punishment. How dare he? You should deal with him. But if he were to say, no, she doesn't deserve capital punishment, all oh, the Jews would say, oh, so you don't believe in the law of God. Who said this? And so they think, we got Jesus in another catch-22. No matter what he says, he's not going to be able to give a good answer. So it's not to find out his view on capital punishment It is designed to get him in trouble. So Jesus really, he can't answer how they want. He can't say you should stone her or you shouldn't stone her. But notice what he says wisely. Whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Now notice Jesus being wise. He knows what's going on. You're just trying to test me. You're just trying to get me in a catch-22. My response isn't going to be you know, to engage in this. I'm going to share something else to get at the heart of you. Okay, well, here's my answer. Whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. I'm not going to say yes to this. I'm not going to say no to this because I know ultimately you're just trying to put me in a situation just like I say, you know, show me a coin. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God. Whoever of you is without sin, cast the first stone. So he's not dealing with the issue of capital punishment. He's dealing with the sinful hearts of the Pharisees who are trying to catch him. So it's an attempt to put Jesus in this catch-22, and he's not going to take the bait. Now, when he says, he who is without sin, cast the first stone, he's not saying, well, only sinless people have the right to condemn. So if you've got a sinless judge, well, they can condemn you to death. But only those who are without sin can do that. That's not what he's saying at all. He's not coming back to capital punishment. He's just speaking to these individuals who are sinful and who are trying to get him in this place. And when he also says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. Once again, that is not him saying, okay, well, the legal system shouldn't condemn you of adultery. You know, I don't condemn you and neither should they. He's not bringing that up for that reason. Actually, it's quite interesting. Jesus couldn't legally condemn her if he was trying to in this way because there are certain things that didn't happen that as we're going to look at that God puts protective measures as he brings in capital punishment. One of the protective measures is there has to be at least two witnesses to the crime. Two witnesses haven't stood forward. We brought the woman, yes, but where are the witnesses that are going to stand forward for the crime? If there's not two, we can't kill her. Okay? There's also a problem. If she was caught in the act of adultery, where's the man? Guess what? You can't do that on your own. So why is it just the woman's here? You know, once again, that's a problem. That wouldn't be, you know, acceptable. But the most important thing is mob justice didn't rule. It wouldn't be like, hey, we found her, let's kill her. No, she has to go through the proper legal process. She has to stand before judge, and she has to then be convicted if there's evidence to prove it. So he couldn't even just say, well, let's just kill her. That would actually go against what God has established in his law. And so when he says, hey, you know what? Who's condemned you? Nobody. Well, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Ultimately, what he's revealing is I have, as God, the ability to forgive sin. That's ultimately what I've come to do. And so this whole situation that people try to use as, well, Jesus is against capital punishment, they miss the context of what's happening, what the religious leaders are trying to accomplish, and why Jesus answers the way that he does is definitely not to try to undermine 
the law and undermine the punishment that God has given for murderers. Another thing that Christians against capital punishment say is that, you know what? We're no longer under the law. We're under grace. And so things have changed. But you know what? That's an interesting statement, but guess what? Capital punishment was given long before the law. All the way back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, notice what we're told. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 9, God establishes the consequence for murder, which is capital punishment. And notice the reason. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man's blood shall be shed. Why? For in the image of God he made man. And this is something that is so important for us as Christians to understand. Why does God take this so serious? Why is it such a huge thing to God that you would murder someone and take their life because that person has intrinsic value? Why? Because they were created in the image of God. And so often we, we put certain classes of people and they die and we don't care. And then there's other classes of people and they're murdered and we're up in arms. Why? Because we value them more. We think, oh, well, this group is so valuable. They're like me and that group. Well, who cares if they die? Well, because we don't see everyone the way that we should with value. Why? Because everyone is created in the image of God. And so God sees life as valuable because each person was created in his image. And to take that life is extremely serious in the eyes of God. To murder that person is a huge deal in the eyes of God. And God says, the consequence of you taking a life that was made in my image is that your life will be removed from you. Now, Paul clearly tells us in the New Testament, one of the roles of government is to punish evil doers, to inflict capital punishment. Romans chapter 13, verse 4. For the governing authority is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a minister, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Notice this, one of the God-given roles to governments, and thank goodness it's there, is to punish evildoers. One of the roles of government, you know, we've made the government quite big, that was not God's intention, but he did have specific roles. One of the big roles of government is to make sure there is law and order. Make sure that people are protected. Make sure that those who break the law are punished. That's one of the main roles that God has established for government. And it's very important. If we didn't have that, we'd be living in anarchy. It'd be a really scary place to be when there's nobody to protect you. There's no police. There's no legal system. There's nothing designed to kind of put a um, protective barrier around those who would try to break the law. That there's no punishment for that. So God's saying, hey, that's the role of government, and that role goes all the way to the place of capital punishment. Notice the phrase, he does not bear the sword in vain. That is speaking specifically of capital punishment. That, that he has that for the purpose of taking your life if you take the life of someone else in murder. So capital punishment is definitely biblical, and you know what? God has not changed his view about it in the New Testament. And so there's two things I want us to be clear about when it comes to capital punishment. First, it is just, because God is just, and he established it, and it's biblical, because God is just, and he established it in his word. Now, I know a big struggle for many Christians is where is the mercy? I mean, come on, isn't God a God of mercy? Where's the mercy in capital punishment? And this is where I understand where Christians are coming from. And we, you know, we're all sinners. And you know, where's the mercy in this? And I don't want to see someone's life being taken. And I get that. And I understand that. And God deals with this. He gives one reason why he says, I'm not going to give mercy to those who are these premeditated murderers. Numbers chapter 35, verses 31 through 34, God says this. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel. 
When a society doesn't justly punish murderers, it has a much bigger effect on that society than maybe we perhaps realize. God tells us that when someone's blood is shed, notice what it does. It defiles the land and it defiles the nation living in that land. And this is something that we often don't think of. Someone's blood is shed, oh well. Yeah, that's bad for them, bad for their family. No, 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 it's also bad for the society. And God is saying, the only way to atone for the defilement that that blood being shed in your land can happen, the only way for atonement to take place is for the murderer, the guilty party, to be put to death. That's the only way it's going to happen. That's the only way for atonement to take place so that the land and the nation is not defiled by this events. You see, the shedding of blood is a huge issue to God. You know, blood's big in Scripture. You know, we see it all throughout the sacrificial system that animals need to be killed, the blood needs to be shed. It's all very, very important. And the most significant of all, obviously, is Jesus Christ, His blood being shed for us to atone for our sin. You know, blood is very important to God. Us killing someone, Shedding their blood is a huge thing that God says are drastic consequences, not just to the person who did it, but to those who don't justly punish it. It impacts the whole nation. If you let that go, there is a consequence that comes to the nation. And so I will not allow it. I will not allow mercy for the sake of the nation. I understand that person. I understand that family might want it. But the consequence that will come for not justly punishing this crime is too severe for the nation as a whole, and so I'm not going to allow it to happen. David Guzik wrote this, The principle that unpunished murderers defile a land is a sobering, humbling thought among Americans where so many are murdered and few are brought to justice for those murders. This is an interesting thought. When you look at what God is saying here about the impact this has on a nation, that doesn't punish murderers the way that God says that they should. And we look at our nation that is full of a bunch of murderers that rarely ever get capital punishment and often rarely ever stay in prison their whole life. They get back out. God's saying this is a huge problem. Now, God speaks of this defilement. He speaks of other things. But you know what? There's a practical aspect to this as well. And this is one where at least people in our culture can understand. They might not get the, the defilement that God speaks of. They might not understand of what blood does to a land or to a nation. But let's just think about this. Statistically right now, did you know that 77% of people released from prison will commit the same crime or a similar crime within five years? 77% of people who were put into prison for a crime, many of these very severe murder, rape, kidnapping, all of which the Bible says your life should be taken from you. Guess what? 77% of them are going to get out of prison and commit that same crime again within five years. The majority of what we see with these heinous crimes are committed by repeat offenders. If you want to stop repeat offending, take their life. Or at least keep them in prison for the rest of their life if you're totally against capital punishment in our culture. Don't let them back out. But you look at our culture and how sad it is if you're the one who someone came into your house and killed your family and you realize, you know what, they already did this. And they were found guilty of this. And they were put into prison and they were let out 15 years later. And now they've come and killed my family. If that person's life was taken, my family would be alive. It would protect the culture to not allow these people to continue to prey on others. So capital punishment would definitely cut the violent crime rate drastically if we actually did it. But it's also a huge deterrent. You know, when we used to have capital punishment and we actually followed through with it, there wasn't nearly the murder rate that we have today. People realize, you know, it's not worth it. I know if I murder you, my life is taken from me. Now it's like, well, I might get 10 years, 15 years. I'm not probably going to spend all my life in prison. I'll do it. You know, the, the consequences have become less and less to where it promotes people to say, you know what, I'm willing to commit these heinous things because, hey, you know, what's going to happen? Well, if they knew, you know what, as it was before, we'll hang you the next day. Well, maybe I think I'll think twice uh, about doing this. So capital punishment is just. It's biblical. It was put into place to justly judge violent criminals and to protect the society. But there's one other important thing to note about capital punishment that, that hopefully I think will help those who struggle with it, who, who are Christians, 
And this is where I think a lot of Christians miss something when they look at, you know, our legal system, and they think, well, capital punishment, look at how problematic it is, or, or they look at some other legal system in the world, and they think, well, see, it doesn't work. Well, yes, I agree, it doesn't, but notice this. In order for capital punishment to work the way that God intended, and this is where we struggle, because we look at what God says, and we think, well, that doesn't work in our, our culture, and our legal system. Well, the way for this to work the way that God intended, there needs to be two very important things that have to be connected with it. First, got to be a nation governed by God, a nation submitted to his rule and authority, just like Israel was. If you're not a nation governed by God, if you're not a nation submitted to his rule and authority, that you don't follow his word as your source of truth, well, guess what? Any legal system that you have is going to be messed up. Any punishments that you associate with that legal system are going to be poor because we're going to have people in roles that just do things poorly because it's not put together right, because we don't follow this first thing of we're a nation governed by God, submitted to his rule and authority. Second, you got to implement all of God's legal system, not just parts of it. You know, and this is where so many people today, they've taken, like, you know, our legal system is based off of the Ten Commandments, but it's not based on the complete law of God. Oh, I, I like don't murder. We don't want that in our culture. Let's bring that in. I like don't steal, I like this and that, and here's some consequences for it. So it's based on a lot of biblical things, but it's not based on all of it. They didn't take the whole legal system. Let, let's just adopt it all. Let's live by it all. Let's just pick and choose what we like, and then we'll put in some things that we like as well, and it'll kind of be you know, a conglomerate of different things, and we'll see how it works. Well, if you want it to be run the way that God wants it, you got to be a nation governed and submitted by him, but you also have to do all of it. You can't just do bits and pieces. And here's the reason why. Many things that God has established were protective measures so that you could actually deal justly. And when you remove those protective measures, you're going to have big problems that come with it. Here's an example. Deuteronomy tells us of laws concerning witnesses, and I surely wish we had these laws in our society. Chapter 19, verses 15 through 20. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any inquiry or any sin that he may commit. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against a man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to do to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Notice here in God's legal system, if you want to convict someone, not just a murder, of any crime, you can't just have one witness. you got to have at least two. Two people have to agree that they saw this and this is what transpired. One is not enough. And to make sure that these people told the truth, because here's the problem that we have today, perjury. People oftentimes stand on the, oh, yeah, I swear I'm going to tell the truth, and they just tell lies. And we don't do anything to them. I, I, I hate these shows that I watch, like Law and Order and things, like, you know, someone tells a complete lie, they find out about it. It's like, well, nothing happens to these people, so why not tell a lie? You know, the, the benefit's big if it comes to pass where their lie is believed, and the consequence is minimal to nothing. So, of course, they're just going to keep doing it. But notice what God establishes. I love this. He says, you know what? For anybody who lies, let's say I lie about you being a murderer. The consequence for me as a liar is the punishment that I'm trying to get you convicted of. So if I'm lying saying that you're a murderer, guess what? Now my punishment is death. Because that would be the punishment, if I was believed, that you would receive. If I'm lying saying that you're a thief, and that's found out, then my punishment is what the punishment for a thief would be. I'd pay either two to four times back to the person that was stolen from. So he's saying, you know what? For anybody who's lying, found to be a false witness, they will receive the punishment that they are trying to get someone else to take who doesn't deserve it. And he says, guess what's going to happen? You'll rid this evil from your land. When people start to realize that, I want you to tell everybody, this person's going to be put to death because he tried to say so-and-so was a murderer. This person is going to be given four times uh, camels because he tried to say so-and-so stole them. Everyone's going to be like, I'm not bearing false witness. I'm not lying. It's not worth it. The consequence is too severe for me to do this. And so God's system, 
He establishes checks and balances, which are a huge deterrent. Because a lot of people say, well, well, there's people going to, you know, be found guilty who aren't guilty because people are lying that they're murderers. And I would say, yeah, that's true in our legal system. And the problem is we have no checks and balances to stop that. There, there's nothing that's really stopping people from saying that, oh, yeah, I saw him. He did it. He's wrong. There's people who are prejudiced. And they say, well, that man's black, so he must have done it. There's people who have all these different thoughts. And so, yeah, our system... I would say there are people who are found guilty that are not, that, that our system's broken. But one of the problems is we haven't adopted all of the, uh, the protective measures of God's law that would help weed out many of the things that we see as a problem in our culture today. I mean, imagine if our society actually did this with false witnesses. I don't think you'd have too many people taking the witness stand lying anymore. You know, they would realize, you know, this is not worth it. And this is just one example of many laws that we'll see that God establishes to make sure his legal system was just and not abused. So you see, one of the biggest issues with capital punishment and other laws of God in society today is you can't just take bits and pieces of it or it doesn't work. And so when people look at our society today and say, yeah, capital punishment doesn't work, I say, yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's broken. We got probably innocent people on death row. We got different problems that are occurring. I get the, the issues, well, that's because we have a man-made system. We got judges who are corrupt. We got liars who get on the stand. We got all these things that are happening, yes. But it does not mean that capital punishment is unjust. It means our system's unjust. Our system is broken. Our system has problems. It's not that capital punishment's wrong. It's that we don't have a system in which we can actually do it the way that God designed it. And we need to separate those two because we're saying, God, what you said is not just. God, what you said is wrong. God, your word is not true. No, what God established is right. It's just that we are trying to put it in a broken system and it doesn't work. And we're wondering, well, God, you must have been wrong in doing this. No, because he said, it's only going to work if you're governed by me. And it's only going to work if you instill all of it. And you're not governed by me in the least here in America. And you're instilling only portions of it. And you're wondering why it doesn't work. Well, that's why. And so it's not the law that's broken, it's people. And that's what we recognize with the law in itself. The law is perfect. The law is not the problem. It's God's perfect standard. The problem is we're a bunch of sinners who can't meet that standard. And in the legal system, we have the same thing. It's not God's legal system that's the problem. It's the fact that we have a legal system that's far from it with corrupt people and sinful people who have established things that make it problematic for real justice to happen. And so as believers, when we look to what we see here, we might recognize, yes, when we place it in our legal system, it doesn't work. I agree. It's problematic. But it doesn't mean that God and what he establishes is wrong or unjust or unbiblical. No, it is right. It is just. It is biblical. It just doesn't work in the system that we have because it's designed by sinful, flawed people. And so I think this is very important as we come into, we're going to see a lot of different punishments that are capital punishments. And I think there's going to be a reoccurring, well, man, that's so unjust. No, it's not. God is just. What he established is just. It's just in the system that we have, because that's what we're associating it with. Yeah, it might not work the same because we haven't established God as the complete authority of our nation, and we haven't established all of his laws the way that we should.